Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Well, I want to turn, first of all, to 1 Thessalonians 4, because our church has lost our beloved Mary Wolf. And it's a great loss. It's gain for her, most obviously, but it is loss for us. Uh, one of the losses for us will be all the prayers that she said for the people of this church and for our church in general. Uh, she was, that was her, that was the work God gave her to do the last couple of years as she was losing her sight and um, stuck at home. But she, this church will be worse off for not having those prayers. And so somebody's got to step into that role. Somebody's, and it, maybe it needs to be a, a dozen or a couple dozen of us to step into that role. Uh, but we do need to do that and make sure that we're praying for one another and for the church. But First Thessalonians 4, those comforting words about those who have fallen asleep, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, it's the key to everything, right? We believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And then this exhortation to continually come back to those, to continually come back to those words for comfort. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, it says. And so that's what we're doing today, comforting one another with those words. So pray for the Millers and the Wolfs and the Belithos during this time. Second of all, I want to make uh, an announcement about a work that New Geneva Academy is undertaking this year. New Geneva Academy, um, as you may know, is Evangel Presbyteries, in a way, uh, pastoral training school. And so we, uh, we offer degrees like the Masters of Divinity, a Bachelor of Divinity, certificate programs in Bible and uh, theology. And so mostly it's geared toward men who are seeking ordained offices, but we're starting a new program just in a couple of weeks uh, called Groundwork. It's called, and the, the subtitle is The Victory of Christ and the Great Conversation. This class, which will start in a few weeks, is open to anybody, male, female, uh, post high school till uh, you're 98. 
cut it off at 98. No, even beyond 98. It's open to anybody um, who has uh, graduated from high school or is around that age. And one of the main teachers is going to be Aaron Tripp, Naomi's father, Naomi Tripp's father. And he's, he's like, he's kind of a genius. He, he kind of knows stuff that other people don't know. He has a degree from England and a PhD in like medieval mysticism or something. I mean, it's weird. He's half alchemist and half thinker. I don't know. But really solid guy. He's going to do most of the teaching. We're also going to have David Talcott teach. He's a, he's a, he taught, he's a PhD in philosophy at King's College. He just moved to New St. Andrews where he's teaching. We're going to have Stephen Baker teach. He's a pastor at Trinity Reformed. We're going to have others uh, great lineup. But listen to this. Here's, here's what it is. Groundwork is an overview of the victory of Jesus Christ from the creation of the world to our present day as seen through the lens of the great conversation of Western civilization. Students will learn how God has directed the history, literature, philosophy, religion, and culture of the West to bring about the growth of his kingdom. Men and women who desire to broaden their understanding of the foundations of Western civilization are invited to enroll in this year-long course. And then here's the description. From the Epic of Gilgamesh to Plato's Republic, from Augustine's Confessions to Beowulf, from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales to Luther's Bondage of the Will, from Milton's Paradise Lost to Darwin, Freud, Hitler, and Planned Parenthood, You'll bump up against the good, the bad, and the ugly of Western civilization and see that all the questions raised by the poets, philosophers, and priests of the past are answered only in our Lord Jesus. And so, um, if you want to extend your education, if you never got that liberal arts education, uh, this is the way to do it in a year. And, uh, of course, there's a cost associated with it. We can't do these things for free, but... Um, talk to me if you're interested about this. There are other pamphlets if you want to grab one outside. I think it is going to be very um, rewarding, very enjoyable time. You get to dip in and read a bunch of works that you've heard the titles of but don't know the content of and have somebody who's really smart lead you through it. I will not be teaching. Let's... <laughs> um, all right, so now to Galatians. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 3, picking up at verse 23. Hopefully the book of Galatians is coming into focus for everybody as we go through this. It is a, um, it is a relentless call to focus on the justification that we have in Christ and an explanation of just exactly what justification is. And so we pick up at verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look into your word that you would, your spirit would be teaching us. We need your help. Father, we are uh, distracted in a thousand different directions and the cares and concerns of the world weigh down on us and, and our hearts are uh, even grieving. But Father, we pray that in your word that we would find hope, that we would find strength, that we would find understanding, and that we would not be those who uh, just hear your word and then go back to the world and, and uh, feasting on the, the vomit of the world. But Father, I pray that we would be those who look at your word and remember it and live it and we become doers of your word. Father, help us in this task. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the end of three, you remember that this section of Galatians, Paul has been talking about justification by faith, justification by faith repeatedly, and then he has to answer the question, well, then why the law? Why did the law come in? You know, if Abraham was justified by faith, and that's 430 years before the giving of the law, then why did the law come in at all? And so we began to talk about that last time, why the law then, it was added because of sins, of transgressions, right? And so we get further into this question, and there's no, there's no contradiction, right? There, there's no contradiction between the law and, and the promise, and why is that? Why is there no, why are they not contrary? I mean, that's one of the points he makes, that, that the law is not contrary to the promises. Okay, the law was a shadow of the promises. What do you mean by that? Okay. So it wasn't the promise. It was pointing toward the promises, particularly the ceremonial law, right, and the sacrificial system, all pointing toward Christ and his final, once for all, effective and efficient sacrifice. So the law is training wheels. Um, in a sense, that is how Paul in this passage describes it, and I think that's a, a fair summary of what he's teaching in this. But again, why is the law not contradictory, contrary? I mean, a lot of people say that it is. It's like, and, and Lutherans do a lot. They get into this debate about whether a passage is law or gospel, you know, 
go back and forth between those things, and it's weird. They write PhDs about that. Yeah. Okay. He fulfilled the promises in Christ. He was the covenant-keeping, law-keeping representative, new second Adam, right? And so he did what, but again, um, it's not exactly what I'm looking for. Okay, simple answer, beautiful, right? The, the promise was always the way of salvation. The, the law didn't come in in order to like make a new way. Right? What salvation was always, always had to be by faith. Right? And so God wouldn't come in then 430 years later after Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness and justified him. He wouldn't then come in and say, all right, that's done. No more grace. You got to keep the law. And that's the means of salvation. That's your way of salvation. No, that's, that was not why the law came in. It was not in order to replace the promise. Okay, the promise has always been in effect. Genesis 3.15, right? That promise there, the grace of God, that God would act on behalf of mankind to save him. And we're dead, so it better be by his work and not by our own, okay? So... So that's, that's the framework that we have to have in mind, okay? So, and then in verse 23, we pick up there, but before faith came, now that's an interesting phrase, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Okay, but before faith came, here's how I think Paul is using that. He's not speaking there of, Abraham's faith. He's speaking there of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the the fulfillment of the shadows, right, in Jesus Christ. And so until that faith came, we needed some sort of some sort of impetus, right? We needed some sort of goad to bring us to understand our need for grace and our need for Jesus Christ. But then once Jesus comes in the flesh, well, it's obvious how we're saved, faith in Christ, right? But it's not so obvious. It wasn't so obvious to Abraham. Abraham didn't have a crucified Savior, right? Things were shadowy. Things were unclear. Yes, his faith was as strong as as a post-cross Christian. His faith was the same. But that doesn't mean that he had the clarity that we have now looking back. He just didn't have that, okay? He believed in God, and God reckoned that as righteousness. He believed in the promises. He believed that there, there, I mean, he was looking forward to the the city, right, that has its foundations in God. There was a sense of looking forward. But he doesn't have the clarity that we have looking back. I mean, if there's any difference between the old and new covenant, it's Jesus in the flesh. That's the only difference, okay? That's the, it, all the promises are the same. 
Old Testament, New Testament, justification is the same. The means of sanctification are the same. All that's different, and it's a huge difference, is Jesus in the flesh, right? No longer the prophet speaking, but now his son speaks, right? So Jesus present. What a glorious privilege for us who have been born after that, knowing that the Son of God came in the flesh. Okay, so, but before faith came, before Jesus came in the flesh, before the, the, the clarity of faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Um, uh, and so, what is he saying here? He's telling us that the time of revealing had not yet come, the fullness of the revealing. The custody of the law was t- a temporary need for those sacrifices, those sacrificial um, pictures, right? Those, there was a temporary time where that would be the clarity, which wasn't as clear as the sun crucified. It was a shadow, right? That there was a temporary need for those because Christ had not yet been fully revealed. So we were kept in custody, imprisoned as it were, right? That's what the underlying word means. We're just imprisoned by all of its threats, imprisoned by the threats of the law, imprisoned by having to, to, uh, to um, uh, exist under the uh, burden of the repeated sacrifices and the shadowy uh, rather than the substantive. And verse 24 then clarifies this, therefore the law has become our tutor. To do what? To lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by the works of the law. No, so that we might be justified by faith. So this word tutor, does anybody know what the word there is? Yeah, it's pedagogos, which means a teacher of children, right? A pedagogue. Um, teacher of children. And so, um, so the, the, this, this tutor, which is the law, comes along and says, children, let me train you. Let me show you what you are. Let me show you what you know and what you don't know. Right? Let me come along and train you in what you need to know. And that, that tutor comes along and says, you shall not covet. And then all you do is covet. <laughs> right? Romans chapter 7. If the law hadn't told me to covet, I wouldn't have coveted. But now that it is coveted, it slays me. Right? I'm just filled with coveting. It amplifies the sin. It provokes the sin, right? So that tutor comes along and says, you shall not murder. And then you realize how much you've started hating all those around you, in your own household even, right? And the law comes along and, and, and says, um, and says you, you know, you, you, can't, you can't eat the hoopoe. You can't eat this and that. You can't do that. You need to be distinct, right? And, 
And even that is just like this, this onerous burden that makes you want to eat hoopo, right? Whatever that tasted like, maybe like roughed grouse or something. Um, and so the law is this tutor. It's an instructor, a pedagogue that leads to Christ. And now the, the pedagogos was not a teacher um, this is one of the commentaries I was reading, but a slave whose job it was to look after a child, sort of like a custodian. Um, he supervised his education, monitored his behavior, oversaw his activities from the ages of 7 to 17. So K through, like first grade through 12th grade. He was responsible for the disciplining of the child and could be severe, the law is not a teacher, but a leader. Through its threats, rebukes, punishments, and provisions, it leads us to Christ. Thus, the law does not confer salvation, but points to the need for salvation. And that's the purpose of the law. It is a sword that slays you. That's what it is. Right? Has the, has the law of God slain you? See a few people shaking their heads vigorously. Yes, it has. If, if you have the Holy Spirit, it has slain you. If you don't, your conscience is completely dead, inactive, unable to be slain. It's already slain. It hasn't been made alive in Christ, right? Even the conviction that comes by this is a work of the Spirit, right? And so, even the, 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 the action of the law is a work of the Spirit in us. And so, the, the law, the loss is a, uh, Calvin always says this. If you hear him talking about the law, he always refers to it as a sword, the sword that slays us. It kills, it kills, it kills, Right? And so what its function is, is to tell you and to show you and to train you to see yourself properly, which is you are terribly rebellious. You are sinful. You break the law. You are lawbreakers before an almighty God who has been gracious. You spurn the one who made you and spoke you into existence knit you together in your mother's womb. You spurn him. And that is the purpose of the law. It just is to kill us. That's it. That's why the law came in, because of transgressions, because of sins. And so, at the end of the day, when you, when you begin to be convicted by the Spirit, and you begin to read the law, and you begin to read what God requires, and, and then you read that he, he calls you to love him with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you're slain by that, because you don't ever come close to that, ever, in, your, in yourself. You just, you don't. And you're, you're slain by even those, those positive commands. And then at that point, what does the one who has faith do? The one who has faith says, well, God, I can't do it. I'm, I'm dead. 
I'm horrible. Save me. And then at, the, at that moment, with that realization, you're like, okay, okay, okay. Oh, oh, Christ. Oh, oh, there is a sacrifice. Oh, I can't, atonement, and I can be redeemed, and, and there is holiness for me. Right? But it's, it's an alien righteousness that I don't earn. It's just imputed to me. God says, it's yours now. Oh, the, the father loves his son. And anybody who bows their knee and cries out for his son, the father loves. Anybody who spurns his son, the father will, will happily cast into hell eternally. Because of the strength of his love for his son. Right? But, but that's, and so that's the, that's the function of the law. You're terrible. No, no, you're more terrible than you just thought you were. You're really, really, really bad. You sin all the time. Everything you do is, is tainted. You're defiled completely. You inherited guilt and corruption from Adam, and that dominates your life. It, domi- it is such a master over you that you're, you're called a slave to it, slave to sin. And that's the function of the law, right? So anybody who comes along and says, you know, does, says that there's any sort of rule that you need to keep in order to know your justification. You should spit in their face and say, how dare you betray the Lord Jesus Christ? It's that serious. You know, some some might say it's baptism. You know, that's baptismal regeneration, they call it, right? Just baptism. And that's for paedo-communists or credo-communists. <laughs> There's many credo-communists that believe in baptismal regeneration or more than paedo-communists. Okay? And so, no. That is damnable heresy to say that your baptism is that one work you need to do. Right? It's terrible. It's terrible. Salvation is by faith alone. Romans 7, we've mentioned it a lot of times. We may as well just, just turn there and see how... I think this is autobiographical. There's some debate about whether this is autobiographical, if this is Paul expressing himself or Paul sort of describing the situation. But at 14, here's what he says, for, for we know that the law is spiritual. Okay, It's not that the law is bad. It's not that the, because it slays us, it's bad. That, that's actually a good spiritual work. It's spiritual. It's of God. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very things I hate. But if I do the very things I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. 
So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin, which I am, which is me, which dwells in me. I find then that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, right? I, I mean, my mind says that, yeah, the law is good. Yeah, it is good if we don't commit adultery. Yeah, it is good if we, if we don't steal. I don't want people to steal from me, so, you know, I should not steal, right? And so we, we concur that it's, it's good in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, right? The flesh, it's in bondage. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So there's that intensity. There's that conflict between the spirit and the flesh, ongoing in the Christian life. But particularly important at the outset of the Christian life, right? That condemnation of the law that comes. Now stop and think about this. If this is true, if that's the purpose of the law, a sword to slay us, and if the, if the purpose and if the effect of the law slaying us is to lead us to Christ, what kind of preaching ought we to be sitting under? What kind of evangelistic work ought we to be doing? What, um, what is the ethos of the church today? The ethos of the church is, dude, that's it right there, and then summarize it. <laughs> dude, chill out, man. I like, I mean, Jesus is cool, and I like cool things. I'm good. Jesus was amazing, and I like amazing things. Jesus was a dude, and I'm a dude, right? I mean, Jesus, Jesus was wise, and I like wisdom. I like wise sayings. You know, and, and Jesus, he did amazing things, and I like doing amazing things. You see what I'm saying? You see what Christ becomes without the conviction of sin preceding faith? What does it make Jesus into? <laughs> did you say us? Yeah, mere man. But 
but he's, he's, um, he's a guru. He's a Dalai Lama. He's a Mohammed. He's just a dude, right? He's just, he's just an addendum to my life that gives me some sort of something to do every once in a while with people who are kind of weird but like to do the same things I do. But the one thing that Jesus isn't in that scheme is is a crucified substitute for wretched sinners like us. Right? So you never hear the law preached anymore. You never hear people trying to convict. Pastors know that that's not how you grow the church. You can't preach conviction. You can't tell people that they're sinning. You can't preach the Ten Commandments. Right? Perry Noble called them Ten Promises. Blasphemer. You know? And so... We, we don't have any law conviction in the church today. The, the, the law conviction, that, that convicting work, the, the Puritans um, would not want to own us. Right? They would not want to own us. And so, and, and honestly, I mean, this is, Look, I'll blame pastors all day long. I'll blame my own weakness. I'll, I, I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not pure on this front at all, right? But I'll also blame the sheep. Sheep don't want conviction. But sheep are stupid, okay? And sheep don't know what they need. It's one of the first things pastors have to figure out is, is, yeah, the people in the pews are as stupid as I am. Right? I mean, it's incredible. You preach. You preach a sermon, and you're like, man, i got to say obvious things today because I'm missing the obvious things. (laughs) I'm just dull, stupid. And so we... but, But then... But then we just be, we begin to cater to um, felt needs, and we want to make sure people are happy. And and who wants? I mean, honestly, after a, a week of the house is out of control, and and work is is just not fulfilling at all, and it's not what we thought it would be. Who wants to come to church and and hear? You shall not covet. (laughs) You should love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. And right now it's at about a half a percent. Why so cold? Those are the sermons that Jesus preached to the churches. Go to the book of Revelation. Right? You're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out. Whoa. And so... And then, and then we're like, the pastor's going to go off. I don't want to bring friends. He's just going to go off. He's going to say something embarrassing about male and female again. Right? He's going to make us look like 
Neanderthals. And yet, your friend needs to hear the law preached. You have no idea what will bring conviction to somebody. They may not have revealed their sins to you. They may, you, you may not know them as well as you think you know them. And, and the Holy Spirit actually superintends the preaching of God's word. Who are you to say no to the Holy Spirit? And so we don't preach the law. We don't preach for conviction. We don't preach with, um, to the conscience. We just like give pep talks. And trust me, I wish, I wish that I could do that every Sunday. Pep talks. You know? I wish I could do that every Sunday. Because, you know, our church would probably grow. Numerically. <laughs> and not spiritually. And then I would stand before God and God would say to me, look, you grew your church, but you damned souls to hell. And so... If this is the purpose of the law, to bring conviction, and when conviction comes, if that's the, the convictional mechanism of the law leads people to Christ, well then, we ought to preach the law. We ought to speak the law. We ought to be focused on the law. We ought to read the word even, and especially we, as your people, as God's people ought to read the word and let it bring us to conviction, right? Continually. You know, when, when, when Jesus called us to repentance, he called us to a life of repentance. And so that's, that's what's on my mind when it comes to this passage. If this is what the purpose of the law is, I'm in the wrong book. This is what the purpose of the law is, right? Therefore, the law has become our pedagogue to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And it doesn't just end at conviction. It's like it leads to Christ. And then you know what Christ says? Christ says, And so if we lose sight of this, then Jesus has nothing to do with sins, right? Jesus just becomes this, this clown that we like to hang out with. Now that faith has come, verse 25, now that the fullness of the revealing of Jesus Christ, right, the clear, 
the clear person that we're to affix our faith to, right? Not the shadows, not the difficulty of looking forward, but now that the faith has been revealed, we are no longer under a tutor. The law does not condemn us now because we are under grace and not under law. We have put the law work... um, You know, we've had that law work done in us, and then we put our faith in Christ, right? And that's the solution. That's the solution. That's the resolution, all all that nasty law work. So... um, So what use is the law today? Well, it's the same as it ever was. (laughs) It's the same as it ever was. It's the same as it ever was in the life of the Christian, the life of the believer, right? It leads to conviction. It shows the way we should walk. It reveals the character of God in all of his holiness so that we can be holy as he is holy, right? That third use of the law, again, that Lutherans don't like, but the Reformed do. The third use of the law, the law is a light to our path. It shows us the character of God and, and what holiness consists of, and we desire that holiness because we have been united to Christ, and that which is united to Christ is holy. Okay? Okay. Imagine preaching Christ and no one is convicted about their need for him because there is no concept of the transgression of the law. They want a relationship with him because they like relationships and find relationships fulfilling. Right? Even relationships with with dead people. Old, dead writers and philosophers. They read so that they can know them and just imagine that that's how they approach Jesus. But the, but the law work has not been done in their hearts and minds and so they have no sense that they need a savior. That's the difference. Without the law work, you will not see Jesus as a savior. You'll see him as a thousand other things, but definitely not as a savior. Because to be saved, there has to be some danger you're in some disease you have, some inability that you live with, some disability that you can't overcome. And deadness in sin is a disability you can't overcome. Think about all the celebrity deconversions you hear about today. It's like every other week, some famous Christian um, musician or entertainer or something puts out a podcast about their deconversion. Well, it's because there hadn't been any law work in their Christian life up to that point, right? They didn't know they needed a Savior. They thought that following Jesus for a time was cool until following Jesus came up against homosexuality. 
And then they were like, okay, this isn't fun anymore because all of my gay friends, I'm basically telling them that unless they repent, they're going to hell. And I can't do that. And so, you know, no law work. We're not going to have that. We haven't had it up to this point. We're not going to have it in the future. We're not going to let God make distinctions. And so I'm out. You see how this works? You see how important the law is? It's hugely important. And I know when you're, when you're working with your own families and you're talking to some cousin or niece or nephew or, or grandfather or grandmother and you, you really want them to come to faith, you want to go to them with all the positive things about faith in Christ. Right? I mean, we just want to go with, you know, for God so loved the world. But what we don't want to do is say, You're in bondage to your sin. You're doomed. You you have broken the laws of God continuously and you don't even feel shame about it anymore. You are in danger. And just get up and leave after you say that. Let the law work. You, You have to trust that the purpose God gave the law still is in effect as much as the purpose God gave in Jesus Christ being an atonement for sins is still in effect. Okay? And it's hard. It's hard in a postmodern age when we don't like any sort of distinctions at all, right? And we're trying to make everybody androgynous and egalitarian as it is. It's really hard to say, look, I'm in and you're out. And here's the reason you're out. It's because of your sin and it's putrid and it's terrible. It's hateful, it's God-hating, and unless you repent, I, I fear for your soul. Do you not know that the scriptures say, you shall not lie, and that the devil is the father of lies, and that those who lie are like him? And then the Holy Spirit comes along, and... And this is exactly what happened in my conversion. I was a blasphemer. I was a foul-mouthed blasphemer. And a young lady said, you're a foul-mouthed blasphemer. Why don't you go read James chapter 3? And I was slain by it. My tongue set on fire by hell? Really? Really? And I was just slain by it. And that was the means that God brought me to conviction. And I was like, I'm, I'm doomed. I'm dead. I am a sinner. I have transgressed the law. I'm a lawbreaker. I had never said that before in my life. I had never thought that in my life. But right then and there, I was like, lawbreaker. And right then and there, I was like, okay, okay, what do I do? And there's the sacrifice of Christ. There's Jesus hanging on the cross right before me. Well, we didn't get to the tasty verse 28. That gets manipulated, but we can save that for next time, Lord willing. All right. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us with courage 
to share the whole counsel of your word. I pray that your law work would work in our hearts and the hearts of others, that it would continue to be this pedagogue that leads us to Christ. I pray in finding Christ that we would We would offer thanksgivings continually for the rest of our years. Oh, Father, I know that Mary is offering those thanksgivings now, and she has uh, claimed her place in your presence by that righteousness that you gave to her. Lord, we are grateful. We praise your name. Help us in this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.